Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brothers and sisters. Welcome to today's Big Picture Show here live on Radio Islam International. I'm your host for today, Mustafa Dasod, and a warm welcome to our listeners at Radio al uh in Durban and Peter Marisburg and all those listening via live stream. Well, dear listeners, uh, this week has been a very eventful week in the world of uh, of what's happening out there, we can say. That's what it is now. It's a world of what's happening out there. It's uh, And yes, the main focus, and it's going to be this way for a while, until this genocide stops. And that too, we can't just take and forget about the issue. It's a serious issue, but at the end of the day, it's something that's central to everybody's minds. Palestine, especially what's happening in Gaza, and the sick genocide that's taking place in Gaza will be central to all of us for some time. And um, we saw a, a, a big turn of events that took place starting from Sunday with a U.S. Air Serviceman, U.S. Air Force Serviceman by the name of Aaron Bushnell, who um, let, uh, let himself alight and succumb to his injuries out of protest of what's happening in Palestine. Then you had um, the sick beach, uh, uh, you had the sick massacre uh, in uh, of over 100 people in Gaza that took place when they were going for the aid. And forget the sick response from Israel, which is something else, which is another lie, based on the many other lies which they are so good at uh, manufacturing. Then, of course, there was the um, the victory of, of uh, which came out yesterday uh, that went viral of George Galloway in the sorry in an election that he uh, in the in the in the area that he was running, and what this meant. And it's a very symbolic victory. Um, and of course, uh, we're going to talk to a special guest on here in the next few minutes uh, about this, about George Galloway. So this is what has taken place this week. But what has been center has been the massacre of those desperate, hungry, starving people that were scrambling to get aid. And some idiotic, should we say, sick-minded IDF soldiers just opened fire at them and killing them. And then they turned around and say that they were trying, Israel's, you know what was Israel's excuse? That they were stopping, uh, uh, they were stopping, they were preventing a riot from taking place. What? Preventing a riot? Who caused that so-called riot? Obviously, people are desperate. What do you expect them to do? to stand nicely, like good people, you know, yes, uh, thank you so much, you did us a favor, the aid is coming to, let's all stand in a single file queue. Absolute nonsense. But that's how Israel lies. And that's why I keep on saying to you listeners out there, that this narrative that I've come about with, stop the great Israeli. It's not Israel, it's Israeli. I-S-R-A-E hyphen L-I-E. It's not Israel, it's Israeli. Like you have Israel, I-S-R-A hyphen H-E-L-L, right? So stop the great Israelite and damn apartheid Israel. So uh, um, uh, I just want to check if my guest is on air. Uh, do we have him on air there? I'm just checking with the studio with our, uh, with our producer if he's on air. 
Okay, we'll just wait to hear the moment he's on air. Right, so talking about uh, Aaron Bush now, right, he was an active duty member of the US Air Force. Right, he passed away on Sunday after setting himself alight in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. as an act of protest against the genocide in, in Gaza. And his last words were, free Palestine. And apparently he made this video while walking in front of the embassy. And he said in this video, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people are at the at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. Free Palestine. Then, of course, the Pentagon goes to say that on Monday, they came out with something to say that that the death of Arun Bashar was a tragic event. According to the Pentagon spokesman, Patrick, General Pat, Major General Patrick Ryder said the U.S. Def, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was following the situation. Of course, then you had on, on social media, people were saying, oh, he was a sick person, etc. You know, he was Thomas. This is what happens when people, uh, you know, uh, this is the cover-up, should I say. Anyway, our guest is on air. And let's get him on there. Uh, Brother Amy Taufia, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the big picture. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for having me on your program, uh, Habibi. Okay. Tell us, uh, Brother Amy, um, uh, George Galloway seems to have had a victory yesterday in what was, uh, what was obviously the, uh, now that you've seen the outcry, or should we say the fallout based on his victory from, from, the, from those that... Uh, that, uh, that he's been an annoyance too, right? Give us a bit of background to this and tell us about it. Uh, Mustafa, let me say at the outset that I really like George Galloway. And may I quickly add and very emphatically that it doesn't mean that I like all of his policy positions or actions of the past. And of course, many people in the past have disagreed or condemned him, condemned him for supporting some unsavory character. So that's my position. And we should never, uh, as I always say, give anyone or any party complete unqualified support because we can uh, in, come unstuck sooner or later if that person says something that uh, goes against our beliefs or values. So, uh, and to George Galloway, I, I like him for two reasons. Firstly, he's a straight shooter, a straight talker. Doesn't make the... the uh, uh, you you don't make the mistake of trying to debate with him. <laughs> He'll deliver very fast claps that will knock you out immediately. He's got a very sharp tongue like a uh, Gillette Super Silver Platinum Harden Edges and so on. He'll cut you to pieces, especially if you are venturing into speaking some nonsense. Journalists are very wary, very nervous in engaging him because they know that they will come out with black eyes. So, yes, I, I have seen him in many debates, and I really like his caustic wit and the verbal blows that he throws. I was quite surprised to learn that he was quite an anti-apartheid activist during those dark days, and he even came here and secretly met with people in the resistance movement. I really got to know about him just before the time, uh, that's just before the war on Iraq. Huge demonstrations were taking place in the UK against the war, and George was in the forefront, one of the loudest voices against Tony Blair. 
uh, one particular event had me applauding and laughing at the same time. The Americans were, of course, for the war. American politicians strongly condemned anyone who opposed the war, and they called out George Galloway, <laughs> and they expect him to ignore them. But no, not Georgie. He flew to Washington, appeared, appeared at a congress, congressional hearing where they were going to really finish him off. And of course, he turned the tables on them in a dramatic fashion, smacked each one of them solidly nonstop. Uh, I think uh, the listeners can check the video on YouTube. Just Google George Galloway, uh, U.S. Congress. Very, very entertaining video that is. Very powerful delivery. The U.S. congressmen were speechless and they were shuffled around as he smashed them to pieces. And, and, and of course, his commitment to the Palestinians has been long-standing. A very powerful voice that has been missing from the U.K.'s parliament for some time now. And now that he's back, and the hypocrites, the warmongers, will be very nervous because he's going to call them out. Uh, I read the British Independent newspaper this morning, and two things stood out. Firstly, the impression when his victory was announced uh, was created by politicians from the main uh, opposition parties, or the main parties, Labour and Conservative, was that uh, well, ah, man, you know, he's not really important. He's not a serious threat. And that he's only, he only won because the Labour Party pulled out its candidate from the election at the last minute. Basically, the message is that he's irrelevant. Uh, we shouldn't worry about him. At the national elections that's going to come up, he will be thrown out and so on. Well, dear listeners, here's the thing. If he is so irrelevant and unimportant, then why is his victory on the front page headlines of the independent newspaper this morning and also other British newspapers. And why have two dozen top politicians been interviewed about Georgie in, in the various papers? And here's the best part. The headline in the independent newspaper this morning features that colossal pain in the uh, unmentionables, Rishi Sunak, who convened a special press conference outside number 10, and he made this very trite, this idiotic statement. Our democracy is being targeted by far right and Islamists. Uh, this is what he said. And he also said that George Galloway's victory is very bad for Britain because he, that is George, is a very divisive character, dividing the British public. I think that statement is quite idiotic. The reference, of course, is to the strong stance that George takes in support of the Palestinians. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, on, on what's happening in Gaza, there can be no division, no two sides, no two sides against... There was no two sides against apartheid South Africa. It was plain evil. No two sides against Nazism. It was plain evil. So the division that we see is caused by Western governments and its media who have been and are still trying to show that Israel is justified in what it's doing. They're covering up for, for, for Israel's action, uh, even what happened now uh, two days ago. Uh, and they keep saying repeatedly, we stand with Israel, we stand. That, that's been the, the message. And, and they are, of course, uh, the cause of the division, not George. And finally, uh, Mustafa, I'm, I'm waiting expectantly for George to appear in the British Parliament <laughs> as a one-man weapon of mass destruction of the liars and the hypocrites and the warmongers. 
Jazakallah, brother. Okay, so Amy, before you go off, so just for the benefit of the listeners, he uh, he will now, uh, he's been elected to parliament as an MP. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he'll be This was in a by-election, am I correct? Correct, and it was quite an overwhelming victory. Okay, fine. All right, there you go, listeners. Thank you, AB. Uh, we'll chat to you again. There you go, Inshallah. listeners. You've heard from our, our special guest, uh, surprise guest. He said he was, I mustn't mention his name. So that's the way he wanted to, uh, I don't know. He, you know, AB likes to make Kaja wherever he goes. So, uh, dear listeners, there we go. Uh, we got the whole rundown from Brother AB about the victory of George Galloway, and he's now going to Parliament. And, uh, of course, this is going to be, uh, as he says, be prepared for some entertainment, for some big clubs because uh, this is what uh, we're going to expect. Uh, and I, I can't wait for you to clap Rishi Sunak, uh, who is obviously, it's so obvious what agenda he's pushing. I mean, Rishi Sunak, uh, if one uh, doesn't accept the fact that he is a RSS poster boy heading to Britain right now, and of course, knowing that they have such close things with the Zionist movement, uh, then and that since he's taken office has been targeting the Muslim community in ways of and different disguises by coming up with stories of uh, grooming of young girls etc as if it's only exclusive to the uh, majority Pakistanis uh, whereas evidence by their own by their own government department shows that it's prevalent amongst the white community not that there's uh, that the Pakistanis are uh, don't get me wrong, not that they, uh, that they are not involved. They are involved, but not to the way it's been dramatized by Rishi Sunak, because obviously he's serving an anti-Muslim Islamophobic agenda. Moving on to what the massacre, the massacre that took place. Well, firstly, uh, well, I'm saying that it is what's been happening. Sorry, uh, I'm a bit, uh, you know, making myself clear. What is happening in Gaza since October 7th is a massacre, it's a genocide. But this week was a massacre within that genocide when those over 100 innocent, hungry, starving people were butchered while trying to rush for aid. So there's been uh, global condemnation over Israel's actions on the killing of aid seekers. Apparently, the French authorities have called for an independent inquiry. And Germany, who has always been covering up for Israel, has also demand is demanding answers from the Israeli government as to why did this take place. And at the moment, I'm told that the death toll of this massacre that took place uh, near Gaza City is about 120 people. Yes, about 120 people were killed, and over 750 were wounded while rushing for food. I mean. Come on, I mean, what? I mean, this is this is all part of Israel's killing machine. This is, uh, uh, I mean, witnesses said that Israeli soldiers opened fire as people gathered for flour. They went to get flour. I mean, that's what they went to get. And uh, Israeli officials said they fired because they felt threatened when people stormed the Itzhaks. Who felt threatened? Right? And um, apparently the foreign minister of France, uh, What's the person's name? Stefan Stefan Sejon said that uh, the double standards that they will not apply double standards to Israel-Palestine conflict. According to, according to the foreign minister, we will ask for explanations, and there will have to be an independent role to determine what happened. France calls things by their name. This applies when 
we designate Hamas as a terrorist group, but we must also call things by their name when there are atrocities in Gaza. Uh, earlier, the French President Emmanuel Moron, uh, sorry, Moron, uh, Macron said the Palestinian aid seekers were targeted by Israeli soldiers and expressed his strongest condemnation of the shootings. Of course, we know that the French love doublespeak as well. So, a reaction from... Um, Reacting to the incident in a post on the social media platform X Twitter, the Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs accused Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu of disregard for the Nabulsi roundabout massacre. Yeah, so this took place in Nabulsi, just around Gaza City, right? And said there was that he was the political face. Yeah, so he said that Netanyahu is the political face of Ben Gever, the Israel's far-right national security minister was obviously up to a whole lot of other tricks as well. So that was the outrage that's been expressed. And according to a popular journalist by the name of Andrew Mitrovica, yes, Andrew Mitrovica, who says that this is another day, another outrage that is inevitable, a lot of Palestinians in the grim dystopian wasteland that is Gaza. And what he's saying that it is inevitable because it does not matter the scale, nature, or manner of the outrages. Palestinians have been and always will be considered disposable human fodder by Israel's army of unrepentant enablers and apologists. They are, of course, hard at work trying, as they are conditioned to do, to find an explanation, an excuse, a rationale to absolve Israel of responsibility for the crimes against humanity that he has committed with impunity in Gaza and beyond. In the myopic calculus, Israel is never to blame, never responsible, never the perpetrator, never guilty, never wrong. To admit that Israel is to blame, responsible, the perpetrator or guilty would be in effect admitting their guilt too. The usual palette of lies, distortions, Right, is being deployed on cue by the usual suspects in the usual capitals and newsrooms to deny or obscure the obvious. Blindness is a necessary extension of their complicity. They refuse to see what the rest of us can see. Their evangelical allegiance to, Israel's, to Israel trumps the truth and decency. It always has, it always will. This by now, familiar pantomime, is playing out in the shocking residue of a massacre of more than 100 desperate Palestinians who surged at eight trucks carrying the stuff of life denied to them by a fanatical regime intent on killing them quickly or slowly. The lies. And I'm going to come to a very important story about how this lies. And you must know that they already had the excuse that they felt threatened. Who felt that, or to avoid threats, or people were intimidated, threatened. Like you take, for example, the moment the ICJ ruling came out last month, on that Friday afternoon, after Juma, it was, the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, by 2 p.m., it was over. Within that hour, Israel already mobilized the campaign against Anwar, the United Nations Relief Workers Agency, which is dedicated to the Palestinian refugees. I heard it myself on SAFM before the Hapas 3 news that same afternoon. So that was just over an hour later, whereby the guy from SAFM, uh, 
uh, I forget that character's name, Alden Sapir, called into an Israeli uh, organization. It's known as NGO Monitor, based in Jerusalem. It's a Zionist organization. It's a Zionist NGO. They go as NGO Monitor, whereby they have a lawyer there from America who's based in Jerusalem by the name of Anna Hertzberg. And you know what she said? She said, Anwar has been poisoning the minds of Palestinian children for decades. So already the, the whole focus on Anwar was there. They have it ready. God knows how many other stories they have ready pre-packaged in the event that they need to use it. Because the way it was like, like mass mobilization throughout the world, Anwar is to blame. And guess what? Up till today, they haven't produced a single shred of evidence to Anwar and to the United Nations of the accusations that they have leveled against those uh, workers that have been suspended or fired, right? Uh, sorry, they have been fired by those workers that have been fired from Anwar that they claiming that were linked to Hamas and took place uh, that took part in the October 7th massacre. So this is how they lie. They have everything ready. It's like you know, let something happen, but we have the we have our PR uh, campaign is on standby. And they masters at it. Let's be frank about it. So, for those, uh, for the benefit of those listeners to know what exactly took place, well, as I said, about 120 have been killed and more than 750 have been wounded, right? Uh, after the Israeli troops fired uh, on hundreds of people waiting for food in Nabulsi, just around Gaza City, right? Uh, the incident unfolded at about 4:30 p.m. local Palestinian time. That was about. Uh, yeah, on Thursday, that was on the 29th of February, when people congregated at Harun al-Rashid Street in Gaza, where eight trucks carrying flour were believed to be on the way. So a convoy of eight trucks passed through the checkpoint heading north as people started gathering in large groups. According to Israel military, a convoy of 31 trucks entered Gaza, but nearly 20 entered the north on Monday and Tuesday. As people gathered in large groups waiting for much-needed aid, they were shot at by all kinds of military equipment. And so this was target practice. This is a, like for the Israelis, it's a war game. Hey, you know what, let's, let's, this is like uh, as if they're doing training or something. So according to Al Jazeera, yes, yes, according to a, uh, and a report from the Associated Press, people pulled boxes of flour and canned goods off the truck. So after the first round of shooting stopped, people returned to the trucks only for the soldiers to open fire once more. After opening fire, Israeli tanks advanced and ran over many of the dead and injured bodies. Just look at how gruesome and brutal this is. I, I, I don't even go on about it. It's so, it's so obvious what took place. So according to witnesses, said the Israeli forces conducted a massacre by firing on a crowd of people who were waiting to collect desperately needed food aid. And uh, according to the Al Jazeera correspondents, the more he spoke, uh, yeah, by the name of Mahmoud, yeah, according to Al Jazeera Mahmoud, the more he spoke to people, the clearer it became they felt it was a trap, an ambush. We had come here to get our hands on some aid. I I have been waiting since noon yesterday at about 4.13 early afternoon uh, sorry, about 4.30, right, uh, trucks started to trickle in. Yes, sorry, 4.30 a.m. that morning. So about 12 hours later, at about 4.30 a.m. early in the morning, 
trucks started to trickle in. So this is about 12 hours later. That's how long the people were waiting when they heard about those trucks. The Israelis just opened, ran the fire on us as if it was a trap. Once we approached the eight trucks, the Israeli tanks and home plates started firing on us. This is according to one of the witnesses that spoke to Al Jazeera, uh, Al Jazeera's correspondent, Mahmoud. Right? Witnesses said that the stampede happened as a result of Israeli firing and that the trucks also rolled over wounded people, adding to the death toll, right? Uh, I mean, it's just too gruesome. I mean, I don't even, I think, I think let's just stop there, uh, people. Let's, I mean, it's, it's really sad what has taken place. And, uh, and of course, they're going to pay. And, and, and the impunity, the hatred for the Palestinians is so strong that now you got an Israeli minister of heritage by the name of Amikai Eliyahu. Yeah, you get Netanyahu and you get Eliyahu, or Eliyahu, sorry. You know the famous Israeli name Eli, E-L-I, yeah. So you get Netanyahu and then you get Eliyahu, right? So um, he's known as one of the extremist ministers, right? According to Amikai Eliyahu, who is the Israel's heritage minister, he has said that the so-called month of Ramadan must be wiped out and our fear of this month must also be wiped out. Right? He's a member of the far-right party called Otsma Yehudit Party led by National Security Minister, guess who? Itamar Ben-Giver. So he's one of Ben-Giver's chamshas. He's like a deputy sheriff. Right? In November, Ilayahu said dropping off a nuclear bomb on the Gaza Strip is an option. So recently, Israeli security leaks indicated fears of an eruption of the situation in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem during Ramadan as a result of Israel's war on Gaza and the restrictions that the Tel Aviv government intends to impose on Al-Aqsa Masjid during Ramadan. Israeli media say, say that the American administration is pressuring Tel Aviv to reach a deal with Hamas regarding a hostage exchange and a ceasefire in Gaza before Ramadan, which begins soon. So Netanyahu said Thursday that it is premature to say Tel Aviv has reached an agreement, right? We know that. And it's also premature to say Hamas has reached an agreement with, with Netanyahu. So this is what, what this is the, the mindset. This is the mindset amongst that Israeli far right that, that is actually wants this war to continue at all costs and have made it very clear to Netanyahu that the moment you reach a ceasefire agreement or the moment you stop the war, that's the end of you. We will pull out of your government and you know what? You're going to face the talk. You're going straight to jail. Do not pass, begin, do not uh, collect 200. Remember Monopoly? Yeah. So that's that's the message out to Netanyahu. They want to cancel Ramadan. How, do, how the hell do you cancel Ramadan? Of course, by blocking Al-Aqsa. And apparently what has happened is since subsequently is that Israelis had to eat humble pie and backtrack on that because they know it's going to cause a bigger problem. So um, there was a, something interesting. We all know about the narrative that has come out about October 7th and that it's a big lie, right? So um, there's a story known as Between the Hammer and the Anvil. Do you know what's an anvil? Anvil is that weird-looking metal contraption like a workbench. You put it there in front, especially known for people working with steel and metal or heavy industry. And you take your metal, you put it on the anvil, and you bang with a hammer on top. 
so uh, you don't damage anything. That's what's an angle. So according to um, Anat Schwartz, yes, Anat A N A T Schwartz had a problem. Right, the Israeli filmmaker and former Air Force intelligence official had been assigned by the New York Times to work with her partners, nephew Adam Seller and Veteran Times reporter Jeffrey Gettleman on an investigation into sexual violence by Hamas on October 7 that could reshape the way the world understood Israel's ongoing war in the Gaza Strip. By November, global opposition was mounting against Israel's military campaign, which we already know how many people it had killed by then, right? And on her social media feed, which the Times has since said it is reviewing, Arnold Schwartz liked a tweet saying that Israel needed to turn the stuff into a slaughterhouse. Right? That's what she's, she liked the tweet, tweet. So, violate any norm on the way to victory, read the post. Those in front of us are human animals who do not hesitate to violate minimal rules. So the New York Times, however, does have rules and norms. Apparently so. Schwartz had no prior reported experience. Her reporting partner, Gettleman, explained the basics to her. Schwartz said in a podcast interview on 3rd of January, produced by Israel's Channel 12, which is one of the most right-wing channels, and conducted in evil. So Gettleman, she said, was concerned they get at least two sources for every detail we put into the article. Cross-check information. Do we have forensic evidence? Do we have visual evidence? Apart from telling our reader this happened, what can we say? Can we tell what happened to whom? So, Anna Schwartz said she was initially reluctant to take the assignment because she did not want to look at visual images of potential assaults and because she lacked the expertise to conduct such an investigation. So, victims of sexual assault are women who have experienced something. And then to come and sit in front of such a woman who I, who, who am I anyway? She said, I have no qualifications. Nonetheless, she began working with Gettleman on the story. She explained in the, in the podcast interview, right? Gettleman, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, is an international correspondent. And when he is sent to the bureau, he works with news assistants and freelancers on stories. In this case, several newsroom sources familiar with the process said Schwartz and Seller did the vast majority of the ground reporting while Gettleman focused on the framing and writing. So the resulting report, published in late December, was headlined, Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. It was a bombshell and galvanized the Israeli war effort at a time when even some of Israeli's allies were expressing concern over its large-scale killing of civilians in Gaza, especially women and children. Inside the newsroom, the article was met with praise from editorial leaders, but skepticism from other Times journalists, in other words, New York Times journalists. The paper's flagship podcast, The Daily, attempted to turn the article into an episode, but it didn't manage to get through a fact check. As, yeah, it didn't manage to get through a fact check. So, in a statement received after publication, the New York Times spokesperson said, no daily episode was killed due to fact check it failures, so they denied it. So the fear amongst the New York Times staffers who have been critical of the paper's Gaza coverage is that Anna Schwartz will become a scapegoat for what it is, uh, for what is a much deeper failure. She may harbor animosity towards Palestinians, 
lack the experience with investigative journalism and feel conflicting pressures between being a supporter of Israel's war effort and a Times reporter. But Schwartz did not commission herself and Seller to report one of the most consequential stories of war, senior leadership at the New York Times did this. Schwartz said in as much as uh, Schwartz said as much in an interview with Israeli Army Radio on December 31st, the New York Times said, let's do an investigation into sexual violence. It was more of a case of them having to convince me, she said. She, her host cut her off. Right? It was a proposal of the New York Times, the entire thing. So her response was unequivocally, unequivocally, obviously, of course, she said. The paper stood behind us 200% and gave us the time, the investment, the resources to go in-depth with this investigation as much as needed. Now, what, does I, what, is, what is trying to be said here is that the New York Times were actually, tasked, uh, actually had to pull out the story. Obviously, it's coming from where? It's coming from the Zionist lobby. We all know how powerful the Zionist lobby is in America, especially APAC. So what they did is they took this right-wing Fulham maker, who obviously filled in the tick boxes, right, and told this Fulham maker and her nephew or niece or whatever to come out with this, to do this investigation and work with so-and-so at the New York Times, right? And the New York Times obviously published the story to obviously give Israel the justification and the excuse for the genocide that's taking place, right? However, being exposed that the story is full of bullets and lies. The New York Times didn't take responsibility and had a sacrificial lamb, who was this other shots, right? And of course, however, those that were in the New York Times who were skeptical about it and had their doubts said that, wait a minute, this is what it is. Other shots is a scapegoat. The main culprits are the senior editors and the leadership of the New York Times, who are the, the real perpetrators and architects of this manufactured story. So that's the extent they go to lies. And there's another one. And this one here, yeah, I have to talk uh, talk about it because this one I've been telling people, the moment I heard the story, it just didn't make sense. And I'm not covering it up for anybody. Right? People say, oh, because you're anti-Iran, you're pro-Saudi. I said, listen, yeah, I'm anti-Iran, I'm anti-Saudi. I'm anti-UAE. Right? As far as I'm concerned, between them all, between all those Arab leaders and despots and uh, the Iranian leadership, there's no good guys, right? Then, then people say, that, okay, but you're pro-Edoan. Yes, I have been pro-Edoan. And I still feel that they, Turkey has got a real problem to deal with with the secularists, with the Kamalists, right? But at the end of the day, again, there's also talk from them. But that, that doesn't detract the fact that they, there has to be a truth in certain things. And what I've, alhamdulillah, managed to achieve over the years through my media, media monitoring experience is how to tell when Israel is lying. Right? It's not an e it's one would say, oh, it's a gift. It's not a gift. If you have to understand the mindset. And uh, when I saw the story coming out about uh, 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 in December, it actually broke late in December. It was repeated in January, again late in January. It kept on coming out. Right? I straight away told people, but wait a minute something doesn't make sense about the story. You can see from the way it's put together, it's a lie. And I'm talking about this land bridge story that came out. What is the land bridge story that, because we know the Houthis have been attacking ships that are transporting 
goods and containers to Israel, right? So what happened is that Israel claims that all those ships are now diverted to the UAE ports, offloaded there, those containers are offloaded and put onto trucks, going through from UAE through Saudi Arabia into Jordan and via Jordan into Israel. That's what they call the land bridge. Right? And another story that I'm coming, uh, that I'm uh, again skeptical about, but give it some time because we'll get clarity soon about this other thing that every day, eight to ten ships, not goods going on eight to ten ships, eight to ten ships. So there's a big difference here. You can take 10% of the load of a ship, right? But they say eight to ten ships are carrying goods to Israel every day from Turkey, right? But we'll come to that another time. And I want to demonstrate to you, listeners out there, of how, to what extent Israel lies. And early on when I spoke about the massacre, about how they had the story ready, etc. And, you know, they can never uh, be wrong and never do wrong. Well, this story exposes this, right? So we know since the beginning of his genocidal war, Israel's supply lines have been jeopardized. And after Israel closed all his borders to import to imports headed to Gaza and struck, uh, struck the Rafah border across it closed or put it out of order, Hamas attacked the ports of Ashkelon and Ashdod, which were used to import oil and supplies used in the war machine, after which Israel had to halt port operations and ships to Eilat port. So, as the genocide in Gaza continued unabated, Yemen took part in the war by blockading right, uh, ships that are coming through the Red Sea, which forced Israel to relocate its supply lines to Haifa, right, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. So, Last month, well, this is now in January, Iraq announced an additional blockade of Israel in the Mediterranean, expecting to be enforced in February. Now, we heard all these things coming out, that if the ongoing rounds of negotiations between Israel and Hamas to end the war fail. Activists in Jordan are also calling for a land blockade on the border with Israel. So these blockades against Israel are causing consumer prices and business costs to go up in the country, deteriorating the trust in the Israeli economy and its financial markets Amidst this chaos, a not-so-successful Israeli company known as Tracknet had alleged that it has established a land bridge connecting the Gulf to Israel through Jordan, offering Israel the lifeline it desperately needs to navigate the negative impacts of the maritime blockades today and in the future. This claim was quickly picked up by the axis of resistance, which we know is Iran and Hezbollah and the Houthis, etc., right? And, of course, uh, the media groups of, that support them followed by widespread criticism on social media accusing the UAE, and the UAE is guilty because they still send goods via air cargo from UAE to, uh, to Israel. So nobody is denying that. Accusing the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan of being complicity, uh, of complicity in the war on Gaza and demanding a curtailment or to stop the land bridge. So yet a cursory investigation of the company supposedly responsible for facilitating this land bridge calls into question whether it actually exists in the first place. Despite Israeli claims, there is very little evidence to show that there is an effective language between Israel, Jordan, and the Gulf. Still, the reasons for the persistence of these claims have more to do with Israel's desire to promote its post-war normalization with the region in the long run while calming investors and consumers and the public in Israel in the short term and forestalling an Israeli economic crash. Furthermore, Israel is using this claim to undermine the Palestinian position in the ongoing negotiations over the conclusion of the genocidal war. 
So there's two companies, one known as Chuckdet, which is Israeli-based, and one known as Pure Trans, which is UAE-based. So the story of the alleged land bridge originates with a failing Israeli tech company known as Chuckdet, which provides a digital platform to optimize shipping. In other words, a data company, not a shipping company. So on the 5th of December 2023, the company issued a press release reporting an agreement in principle for cooperation with a UAE-based company known as PureTrans, allegedly working in cooperation with Dubai ports and specializing in logistics, freight and transportation brokerage. As part of the agreement, both companies have ostensibly agreed to cooperate so that cargo shippers and transport service providers can use the Chuckdet platform to optimize transportation between the ports of Dubai and Haifa. This will include the automation of cargo transportation and provide real-time truck tracking of trucks, carbon dioxide emissions, and the status of shipments. But the company's claims don't add up. Several details emerge upon investigating Chuckdet's original Hebrew press release and the circumstances surrounding PureTrans, Chuckdet's alleged UAE partner, which show that these companies are not engaged in any shipping at all. What more? What's more, no commercial ex activities exist for a UAE company under the name of Pure Trans. In other words, there's no such company in the UAE. So in addition, it seems that Chucknet is involved in the financial manipulation of its own stock, which appears to be the motivator for making this claim. So a day before the announcement, the company's stock price was sitting at 127 Israeli shekels. By December 18, the price had doubled to 256 shekels. The price has since returned to a pre-announcement price range of about 160 shekels, 159 to be exact. If the company is generating additional revenues due to increased business activity as a result of this so-called land bridge, the price of the stock would not have plummeted so severely. Instead, the price of the stock would have gone up. In other words, it appears that the claims about the company's activities are fictitious, but despite the lack of firm evidence of the existence of a land bridge, the story has been widely shared by, listen to this, pro-Palestine activists as evidence of UAE complicity in the war by offering Israel a lifeline as it struggles to use the Red Sea to import necessary items from Asia. The UAE made no comment in response to these allegations. However, the Jordanian public officials have denied the existence of such a land bridge, yet did not deny and listen to this carefully, the Jordanians have not denied of the existence of some trade that's taking place between Jordan and Israel as per the Oslo Peace Accords or prior economic and political agreements, right? Despite the slim evidence, the wide reaction to the inaccurate news has captured the intention of Israeli public officials. So it comes to the question, is there an embattled Israeli government by having this inv invention of pure trans? Well, the Israeli Minister of Transportation, Miri Regev, you must have seen her gone viral on a video club at an India port talking about this land bridge. So Israel Minister of Transport, Miri Regev, has sought to capitalize on the panic of the pro-Palestine activists to legitimize her government further as it is increasingly accused of damaging the Israeli economy designing to undermine the psychological effectiveness of the Yemen, Yemen blockade on the Red Sea. So on the 22nd of January, 
Niri Rege posted on exclaiming a team to enable the overland transportation of goods from Abu Dhabi to Israel, not even from Dubai to Israel, but from Abu Dhabi to Israel. That just shows how pathetic they are, right? Or how obvious they, their lies are, right? Has been established. On February 13, she published another post during a visit to India, showing the alleged shipping docks for the goods shipped to Israel through the alleged land bridge. Now, she was in India to visit Adani. That's Modi's man. And Adani Ports controls most of the ports of India. And Adani Port, Adani Group also runs the Haifa port. So it was, she was there on official business between for the Adani Group between their port agreements, but used this to capitalize. So what, what Miri Regev, let me just get to the, sorry. Uh, what Miri Regev failed to mention is that the Yemen blockade on Israel already covers the Arabian Sea, which means that any ship destined for Israel from India even before it uses the presumed land bridge, will be struck as if it were passing through the Red Sea. A ship destined for India for India was already struck earlier in February by the Yemeni armed forces, demonstrating the ability to prevent any land bridge India may support through ships to the UAE. So even the Yemen, you must know Yemen has got a very long maritime port. So it's not just there by the Red Sea, it's also there by the by the Strait of Hormuz, by the Persian Gulf. So prior to the minister's expression of intentions about formalizing the language, there was no evidence of the existence of a UAE company known as PureTrans. A company website was created under the domain puretrans.ae.ae, like how we have .co.za, is for the UAE, right? The contact page on the site lists PureTrans at Alpho, uh, sorry, alphoenixgroup.com as a company email. The mother company's website show it was created in Tel Aviv. The website claims the company offers electric, electric shipping across the Middle East, even though the relevant technologies do not exist yet. And no supporting evidence was provided to show the electric ships or vehicles allegedly used in the futuristic process. So apparently this, this domain is about electric ships. We don't even have electric ships on the sea yet. Additionally, another company associated with the group, PureTech, was also created in Israel, whose founder, Abdul Qasim, is an Israeli citizen based in Haifa. His associate, Nadine Rohana, is also an Israeli. Taken together, the available information on pure trans would indicate that Israel has invented a fake company in the UAE while manufacturing a narrative based on deliberately inaccurate information to create a false impression that such a land bridge is not only a possibility, but also already in existence. That said, there might be some low-volume truck movement for testing a future prospective land bridge, but such traffic would not even constitute a pilot program, yet let alone a vaunted land bridge. So comes to the next question, the theoretical merits of this land bridge. So most people think the land bridge, uh, the idea of the land bridge is a result of this war. It is not. It is actually part of the India-Middle-East-Europe economic corridor known as IMEC, IMEC which were announced last year by the U.S. and its allies during the G20 meeting in, in Delhi in September. The IMEC are planned economic corridors that aim to bolster partners' economic development by fostering connectivity and economic integration through railways, clean energy, and data pipelines amongst Asia, the Persian Gulf, and Europe. So this is something between India via the Middle East to Europe. Obviously, Israel wants to be the darling of it. 
Specifically, it is supposed to connect Greece to India through, sorry, through a land bridge that crosses the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Israel. So Israel is just, by the way, we're going to pass through you. What the ports of Dubai and Haifa operating as maritime shipping hubs? The vision for IMEC was used by Netanyahu during his speech at the UN in September 23, which he presented visually as the map of the new Middle East from which Palestine would be erased. So this is the real language, and it does not exist yet. The project bridge is supposed to be roads-based but railway-reliant. The IMEC thus far isn't even a formal agreement, but it's an expression of intention, which was supposed to be followed by deliberations to take place within 60 days from September G20 summit in India. However, October 7 threw a wrench in the talks, in other words, a span in the works, which is to say the land bridge as of yet remains an idea. Jordan and the prospects of a land blockade. Online videos showing trucks coming to Israel from Jordan are not actually linked to the alleged land bridge or the Gulf. Rather, this has been taking place due to pre-existing peace agreements dating back to 1994 post-Oslo. Oslo agreements took place in 1993. In 2021, trade between Jordan and Israel amounted to $430 million. According to the Observatory of Economic Complexity and included uh, displays, cars, petrochemicals, foodstuff, agricultural products, and energy supplies. Given the maritime blockade, this trade activity may have increased in volume, leading to the perception of a new, qualitatively different land bridge. Still, this movement in trade has already existed for decades, and even an increased volume in trade with Jordan cannot offset the losses from the maritime blockade that is hammering the Israeli economy. So as per the agreement, Jordan is not legally allowed to ban exports from, from Jordan to Israel or otherwise risk breaking the peace treaty and becoming a party to the current and future wars of Israel. And Jordan cannot afford that a war with Israel. Despite the state's official stance, many Jordanians took to the streets to demand stopping the supplies to Israel and cutting trade. This is not a new phenomenon in Jordan. Previously, Jordanians protested gas supplies from Israel and demanded their curtailment. The protests this time, however, are motivated by the desire to undermine Israel's ability to carry on its genocide on Gaza. Jordanians perceive, uh, perceive current trade as complicity in this war. So as Jordanian protesters demand for a land bridge grow in, uh, sorry, demands uh, for a land blockade, sorry, grow in pursuit of dis uh, disrupting Israel's war machine, Israel is not only actively promoting the idea of a land bridge, from the same borders, but he's pretending that it already exists. The question remains, why is Israel so invested in maintaining the Sharat? Dear listeners, unfortunately, we've come to 12 o'clock. It's now to the end of the show. A special jazakallah to our uh, engineer in the studio, Brother Abraham. If you want to read more about the story, I've posted it now on Facebook and Twitter within the next half an hour. Uh, under my name, Mustafa Dasson on Facebook and my Twitter handle, MF Dasson, is by Wonderwise, which is a um, a, a, it's actually a Jewish site, but it's a very liberal site on what is happening in the Middle East. And this is what they expose in Israel's lies. Jazakallah uh, khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.